Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And first question, I think, to get us off on is Rupert Murdoch, mm-hmm. who claims to have stepped aside. Now, of course, Murdoch's something we think about a lot. You interviewed Brian Cox, the great star of Succession, which I think is a pretty fascinating insight. I mean, even if it's slightly off beam. Did you feel Succession was a relatively realistic portrayal of the way that Murdoch, his family, that empire operated? Well, Brian Cox, the actor, doesn't want anybody to think that it's based on Murdoch. Right. And I get that, because they want to think they're creating something completely new. But if you know and you've seen the Murdochs operating, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And actually, what's really interesting now, just to throw in one question here from Dave H., what would it take to dislodge the disproportionate influence of the Murdoch press on political reporting? We can come on to that. I had lots of sort of interactions with Murdoch and the Murdoch family, and, and famously, sorry, to be to be cheeky, famously, one of the big moments was the decision of Tony Blair and you, I think, to fly out to meet Rupert Murdoch before the 97 election. And that was important because the right wing media, particularly the Murdoch controlled media, had been very important in the defeat of Neil Kinnock the time around. So getting the Murdoch media at least friendly and on side was considered to be quite a coup before the 97 election. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that Murdoch backed us in 1997 because he knew that we were going to win. I don't think we won because Murdoch backed us. And I think you can overdo. I'm not, I wouldn't understate the influence of media in this, but I think you can overdo it. I think we were going to win. They worked that out. Uh, and it was a political risk because lots of people in the Labour Party were very, very angry. And tell us a bit, bit about where is it that you went to meet them? The Hayman Island. Wow. Yeah, long way. So, so that was like on a, on a boat or on an island? We, 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 flew, we flew to Sydney. Paul Keating, one of my favourite politicians, put us up at Kirribilli House, which is the Prime Minister's residence in Sydney. He was he had some great insights into into Murdoch. I remember he once he said once he said, thing you've got to remember about Rupert, 
His priorities are as follows. Number one, Rupert. <laughs> number two, Rupert's business interests. Number three, Rupert's political power. Number four, the family. Number five, everything else. That was uh, kind of his and, view. And, and 25 years ago, did Murdoch already seem like quite an old man when you met him? No, he didn't seem old. He seemed pretty grizzled. Um, it was very interesting to watch him at that event. So this was a thing where all the the News Corp editors were gathered together in the same place. And you were, being, you were being given a chance to talk to all the editors. And Tony did a, yeah. a sort of speech. And, yeah. and uh, But what was – so I think I may have told you this story before. So we're having this – so we flew to Sydney. Keating put on a, an Australian Air Force jet. We flew up with him. He came with us. We arrived at this... Can I just sort of stop on that? I mean, would... well, we, the, the listeners aren't getting many questions no, no, here, no, are no, they? But, but it's a fascinating story. And this is really <laughs> big news, Murdoch stepping aside. I mean, this man is, uh, has dominated not just the European and Australian, but the American media landscape through mm. Fox News. I mean, he's, you know, a lot of the reason Trump came in. Mm. Um, but I'm also sort of wondering, I mean, in Britain, it would look a bit odd for a prime minister using a national... Air Force jet to fly out to a meeting with a, a newspaper editor. I mean, that really gives you a sense well, no, of the power the, of this man. No, I think from Keating's perspective, he was the Prime Minister of Australia, building relations with Tony Blair, who was widely expected to be the Prime Minister of the UK. And he, he was, though. He, took, he gave us a lift and he stayed for the whole trip that we were there. We spent lots of time with him. So, so it does illustrate the power of Murdoch that he's able, he was able to get... Yeah, and also the fact that we decided, despite the political risk and despite lots of people... I mean, there's a piece, there's one of the most dramatic passages in my in my diaries. I mean, you know, I love Neil Kinnock to bits, but he did threaten me with a, with a, a boiling kettle. And when he came to sort of say, Neil, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he just, fucking Murdoch, going to see Murdoch. You know, it was a very, very unpopular thing for it's, a it's, lot of people. I, I had a tiny example of something on a much more mini scale, which was before I became politician. So we're back in kind of 2008. And when I was... Uh, teaching at Harvard and doing stuff about Afghanistan, I was invited to a dinner and I sat next to Rupert Murdoch. I mean, when he wants to be, he can be unbelievably charming. The first thing that struck me is very unusually for a very powerful, wealthy man. He listened. I mean, generally powerful, wealthy men are just on transmit mm. all the time. And he speaks very quietly. He speaks he? very he quietly, listened very thoughtfully. He gave me some very good advice. I was trying to hire somebody for a, a charity. He said, a uh, Rory, my advice to you is all that matters is that they should be loyal and hardworking. Nothing else matters at all, which actually really clarified things for me. But most striking, well, at the end of the evening, he said, you've been very interesting on Afghanistan, and I'd like to come pick you up tomorrow morning in my car, take you down to the Wall Street Journal. I'd like you to speak to all my editors. So sure enough, next morning, car turns up with Murdoch in it. I get in the car. We drive down to the Wall Street Journal. All the editors are assembled. He sticks me in the seat. And it was, I thought, interesting because... I, I don't know what the political game was. I wasn't a member of parliament. I was just somebody critical mm. of the Afghan war. Mm. I think there was a sense that along with all the other things, he has an instinct for news. And he sensed that my criticism of the Afghan war was something his editors needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And he was going to take time out of his diary to move me in the car and bring me in. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the only encounter I've mm. ever had with him. Then when I became politician, I really kept distance from him. I didn't want to go to his parties. I didn't want to mm. get too close. I had a huge row with James Murdoch, his son, about Afghanistan. Because it then turned out that his son was very, very pro-Afghan war. Mm. And the father was obviously more sceptical. So I ended up with Rebecca Brooks and James Murdoch in this big argument. And that was really the last time I really encountered them. So he's, he's announced that Lachlan, one of, the, one of his two sons, he's got two sons, two daughters who are going to fight over the spoils, as it were. That's the succession bit, which I think is still to play out. 
because there's one, there's Elizabeth's very well known. She was married to Matthew Freud for a while. She's now married to a very famous artist. And they've all done lots of different things, but Lachlan looks like he, Rupert is trying to put him in the main pole position. But I can remember once when they came to number 10, and it's true. I mean, I'm, you know, when Rupert Murdoch came into town, he would pop in and see Tony. He would usually come through the back door. I think partly his request, partly ours. And I remember once we were having a drink up in Tony's flat above number 11. And we started to, we're talking about the Middle East. And James, who was, as you say, quite strong views on foreign policy, I would say coming at things from a very anti-Israel position. Murdoch very much pro-Israel. Tony sort of sitting there watching this and watching. And eventually, James slightly starting to lose his temper about the situation fucking Israelis and the, you know, and, and I remember Rupert Murdoch at one point saying, James, you don't talk like that in the Prime Minister's house. Bit of a slapdown. I remember saying to Tony afterwards, that was really interesting, but it was quite, I thought it was interesting that he let them go a bit. <laughs> Anybody who knows Murdoch, it was interesting what people like Andrew Neal and others were saying was that, you know, the idea that he's going to step back, forget it. But he is 92. Um, I'll tell you the other thing that I remember. 92? I mean, that's a serious age. Yeah. That's, that's uh, 12 years older than Joe Biden. <laughs> so I think that the, the other thing I remember from that Hayman Island, though, was that, you know, we did see it as quite an opportunity because it wasn't just that, you know, you, you talk about when you got the editors together. If you think that, for example, I don't think any of his newspapers around the world, none of them, I don't think any of them, quotes, were against the Iraq war. Now, that means that basically there is a corporate line here. So that's why, perhaps, we felt important to sort of keep him on board. Tony got very irritated with him towards the end because he thought that, that that editorial support gave him kind of the ability to sort of phone when he wanted, say what he wanted, and, and it doesn't. The truth is it doesn't. But I remember in that Heyman Island thing, it was a very, very interesting insight, when we hadn't even finished the speech by the time we got there. We were still working on it. And I sat down at this, there was this barbecue down by the pool at this fancy hotel in the Heyman Island. They'd taken over the whole resort. And Murdoch came and sat down next to me and Tony was chatting away to some of the other people who were there. And I said to Murdoch, we've put more work into this speech than any other speech for the, apart from the party conference. I mean, pretty much moderate bullshit, I would call it. We had put a lot of work into it, but it was like, it was just small talk. Next thing I know, editor of the Times and the editor of the Sun come and join us and Rupert says, uh, or mumbles, he says, uh, very important speech Tiny Blair's making tomorrow. I hear. They sort of sit up and then they disappear. <laughs> and then they come back 20 minutes later and tell us that it's going to be front page lead. They're going to run extracts. Gosh, so that little sentence. That, that was it. Yeah. That, was, that was it. So it's, so it's an extraordinary example of the power, isn't it? I think. Yeah. 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 Well, we should, we should get into this because this is a huge issue in our democracies, the power of these companies. I think it is waning. I do think it's waning. I think that... But you're sometimes a bit paradoxical about it, aren't you? Because sometimes you're like, it's waning. Yeah. And social media's on the rise. Yeah. And actually, it wasn't that important, the Labour victory. But... Other times when you're irritated, you're like the fucking right-wing media are dominating everything. Else. I no, I think that I think where I get irritated is that they can still dominate the agenda. We had, do you know this? The issue we got most questions about this week, by a mile, was why was there no coverage on the television of the the rejoin European Union okay. march? Well, let's let's take let's take a question that Lena Pooley. Why was there almost no coverage of the rejoin EU march on Saturday? I saw nothing on the BBC or Channel Four News, very little in the Sunday papers. However, I watched very good coverage by a French TV station, which asked. Why are there no British cameras here? So 
Tell us about the march. Fiona went on the march. She did. I was at the football. And I, look, I think even when we were doing the People's Vote campaign and we are getting marches of a million people, it was a struggle sometimes to get them there. But I think with this one, I think that is where I would say the right-wing inf- media influence is. If the papers aren't covering it, the broadcasters decide it's not important. Right. I think that's the problem. And why is the Guardian and the Independent not covering it? They might have covered it a bit. I don't know. Um, look, let's be honest. The issue is not what it was, because if you've got neither Labour nor the Lib Dems, nor, you know, I think the other thing, to be honest, that the the people who were speaking at it were the same sort of people who were speaking before. I think there was a very interesting piece that somebody sent me actually from The Spectator, where they said that, you know, if there had been people there who said, I voted Brexit and I wish I hadn't, if there had been people there who said, this is what I used to think and now this is what I think, but it was sort of the same voices. But but it it was a fascinating thing. I was on the way up to the football and Fiona was texting me (laughs) updates. and So she's there at this sort of, you know, you're pro-European, rejoin the European, Guy Verhofstadt is a very good speaker, etc. Next thing she says, oh my God, there's a ban the ban on the bully dogs march arriving at the same time and then there was something about a protest going on in relation to pakistan and she said there's the the band the band people the bully dogs people there weren't that many of them pro bully dogs people pro bully dogs yeah but they she said they were walking down the street surrounded by media yeah because the media decided this is a more more exciting story yeah more interesting now um having a mayor lisa after listening to a tale of two andes I wonder, were we wrong in Bristol to vote against having a mayor? I, th- I was absolutely, very, absolutely, uh, very, very sad. And I actually I was, was really, really impressed by the mayor of Bristol, and I was actually keen to have him on on the show. And I, I, I think we should have more local government, not less. I mean, I think the anti-campaigners are so good about saying, "Oh, we don't." Their line is always, "We don't need more politicians." More politicians. Yeah. But what we actually need is better quality local government with more resources, closer to people, and it will be a huge improvement in our democracy. We got a lot of feedback on the the two Andys, Andy Burnham, Mayor of Manchester, Andy Street, Mayor of Mess Midlands, and it was very, very positive. And I think a lot of what they liked about it was the fact that both of them were actually saying they weren't party voices, were they? they they're Andy's Labour, Andy Burnham Labour, Andy Street Tory, but they weren't saying we're here to sort of parrot the party line. They were absolutely about their place. And, it was and I thought I thought Marvin, the, the, the Bristol mayor, I thought he was terrific. Um, and it was tragic for me. And that's just part of this sort of, you know, it's what you say in your book. We haven't bought enough into the idea of devolution. And so, no, I, I, I completely agree with Lisa. I, I think we've got to have more, more mayors, not fewer. Very good. Now, here's, here's a bit of a tough one for you, Rory. Yes, sir. Okay, well, it's a tough one for both of us, actually. Marion Fallon, you never discuss what is happening to disabled, sick people. There are millions of, of us. I've asked this question many times. I've given up now. And when you know how Rory Stewart voted on policies that are harmers, there's the reason. So we're back to your voting record. We don't need to go into that. But I think they have got a point. We don't really talk about this very much. And there are millions of, of disabled people. I'm going to give a, uh, a shout out to a school I went to last week down in Exmouth in Devon, the Deaf Academy. Apparently there are 22 schools for the deaf in, in the UK. What was interesting, really interesting about this one, the, 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 well, they're not all children. They're from sort of children up to 25 and then young adults. And they're deaf but also have often special educational needs, physical, mental health. Um, it was a very, very, very inspiring place. I, I met with the student council 
all some profoundly deaf, some with literally no hearing yeah. at all, others who've had implants that they can yeah. hear a bit, and some with hearing dogs, and it was a wonderful place. Anyway, their current campaigns, they've won the campaign to get a 20-mile-an-hour speed limit outside. They've yeah. won the campaign for a zebra crossing. Their next two campaigns, and the first, and I think we should back them on this, their first campaign is they want to have BSL sign language on all government press conferences. Right. Now, they have it in Scotland and Wales. Yeah, yeah. But when Number 10 do a press conference... They don't have it. They don't have it. And so the next, next request. And the next request, which is really relates to the question yeah. in a way, they want to have the symbol for disability changed. Okay. At the moment, the symbol for disability is a wheelchair. Yeah. And so what they say that does is it excludes people with... Yeah. Invisible yep, yep, disability. Yep. So I think that's something that if that's we lovely. do do a manifesto, yep. Rory, there's should, two things that we should put we should be, right and, in. And let's, and let's do that manifesto. And a, a quick sort of shout out to the uh, Scottish government. So my, my sister, Fiona, has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And the Scottish government, whom I'm often kicking, has actually done really well by her. I mean, I think there's been fantastic support for her in getting her into work. I mean, she had a work coach. They um, initially helped fund the company that employs her, and Fiona gets, I think, real fulfillment um, out of the time that she spends at work. She goes to work every day, and I think the company that employs her is very good at supporting her, but I also think, I hope they feel they get a lot out of her. Mm. So, tribute to the Scottish government. And also, my Fiona, who has been to the Apple shop quite a few times recently, and on two occasions, as she's gone in and asked for to see somebody, they've said, do you mind having somebody helping you who's deaf and she said no not at all and they did it all through an ipad and these kids down in in exmouth they were when they were talking about what they want to do when they leave it was just fantastic one wanted to be a football coach one wanted to work with dogs one wanted That's to work lovely. in a museum now adam van der Boucher, what five rules should starmer put in place to improve governmental transparency integrity and in the end regain trust in our corrupt system i'm, I'm going to start so rule number one Ministers should serve a minimum of two years unless there's some completely unprecedented scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, they should have a three-week training course before they take over with a proper handover. Number three, I think, of course, we should change to something more like the New Zealand proportional representation mm -hmm. system. I would like to see half the cabinet being appointed people with real professional skills and knowledge of their areas Ooh, rather than just the MPs. Okay. And then the final thing is I'd like to see much more radical devolution down to a local level. Those are my five. Okay. Over to you. Uh, I agree with most of those. The cabinet thing would be a massive change and maybe we need that. First of all, I would like here to say in the manifesto, our politics is close to being broken. To repair it, we have to have a fundamental rethink of how we do politics at every level. I would love it if he said during the campaign, I want to put my shadow cabinet on notice that if we become the cabinet, I can tell them now that if any of them ever stand at the dispatch box in the House of Commons and say something that is a lie, they will be sacked. And if they say something that is untrue or factually incorrect and they don't correct it immediately, they will also be sacked. I think that would really, really signal to people that he's serious about this. And I think the other thing is, I mean, I do recommend, maybe we should put it, you mentioned Angela Rayner in the in the main podcast, maybe we should put this in the um, in the newsletter. I, I do think that some of the ideas that Angela Rayner is talking about in relation to rebuilding ethics and the seven... Nolan principles, yep. honesty, openness, objectivity, selfness, integrity, accountability, and leadership. I think Labour should persuade Parliament to endorse those for all MPs. Very good. Okay, Rory, uh, lots of questions to come. Let's just take a quick break.
The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Helen Laws, what would your advice be on strategy to have the best chance of getting a PR system of voting in to avoid the toxic polarizations ruining, ruining society? So if you were in charge of advising a campaign for changing our electoral system, proportional representation, how would you actually think about achieving it? And what is it realistically? Five years, 10 years, 15 years? How would you set about doing it? Well, we talked a, bit, a little bit about this on the main podcast in relation to New Zealand. I do think that there's always a danger in a campaign where you feel it so strongly yourself that you can't quite understand why others don't. You have to get new voices. And so I think that the I do think the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, who are the most committed to that sort of change, that, that they should come together and actually start really pressing the Labour Party. Because in the end, you can't change it without a government. Absolutely. It wants yeah. to change it. Yeah. So they should be putting far more pressure on them. And I think doing it by saying, look, we'll help you get rid of the Tories if. Very good. Okay, question from you. Well, I want just this. James Russell, re Chris Cabber. Why won't former Attorney General Suella Braverman be held to account for her intervention? So this is where a police officer has been charged with murder, presumably after a pretty thorough process by the Crown Prosecution Service. You and I and nobody else knows more than what we've read and what we've seen. And, and this, this is where a lot of firearm officers have handed back their weapons in protest and solidarity with yep. this police officer. And Suella Braverman put out a statement on social media essentially saying we can't have a situation where policemen go to work without feeling that, you know, thinking they're going to end up in so, court so, kind of thing. So, which, if, When I was a journalist, you'd have thought, oh, is that not contempt of court? Interesting, isn't it? So we just talked to Theresa May about this in two episodes of Leading, which will be out on Monday. But one of the things that she was saying is that as Home Secretary, she was under huge pressure as a Conservative to always support the police. Actually, she didn't. She's often been very, very critical of the police as Home Secretary. Suella Braverman obviously made the different choice, which I guess is the kind of Republican American choice, which is police to get right or wrong. Exactly. I'm always on the side of the police, right or wrong. Mm. But I think there is a, you know, it was interesting, the Solicitor General put out a, a media advisory note reminding the media and users of social media, he said, of the law 
concerning contempt of court. And I, I have no idea whether that was in direct response to well, Swallow Braverman, but I thought it was quite a big deal. It's quite, quite a big deal, yeah. yeah. Another one for you, Rory. What did Rory discuss with Humza Yusuf? John in Oban wants to know. Ah, so Hamza Yusuf and and I met uh, at the He's UN. The first Minister of Scotland. First Minister of Scotland at the UN General Assembly, and um, in fact, I met him just after I met the President of Malawi, and we were discussing Scotland's international development program. Scotland has a small international development program, but it's very, very interesting. Under Nicola Sturgeon and now continued under Hamza Yusuf, they've been taking some very interesting leads, particularly on the issue of climate reparations and the issue of really making sure that the people who are suffering most from climate change, the extreme poor of the world, get the support that all the climate change money doesn't just go to technological change, converting people to renewable energy, but also thinks about the people in Somalia who are experiencing you know, seventh year of droughts and are on the receiving end of this. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very interested in the way in which a smaller country like Scotland uh, can define the agenda in that way. Rachel. This is for your friend Gillian Keegan. My daughter's secondary school has been closed for four weeks. There seems to be no plan for a return to appropriate face-to-face -face learning and Department of Education embargoes on sharing information, meaning media attention has moved on. Does the government just react to what's in the public eye? Well, and we've gone round and round on this. I mean, this is the question of the fact that these buildings are unsafe. And so Gillian Keegan made the call just before term started to close schools to the absolute fury, obviously, understandably, of parents, teachers, pupils who suddenly found just at the beginning of term that their school buildings were closed. I think it was the right thing to do, but I can also see why people are very angry about it. She did also say in Parliament that the kids love being in porter cabins. I, I was taught in porter cabins. Were in the you school at Eden? That, yeah, in the school that you keep banging uh, on about. Yeah, you yeah. were in a porter cabin yeah, at yeah, Eden? My, my, all Do my you have English, dreams about that? All my English classes from the porter cabin. No, it was fine. <laughs> she, right, you should uh, have the last question. Go on then. Okay, now my last question. I'm afraid it's it's less highbrow than some of the questions you've Oh, is it trivial, like you said this podcast was? Uh, no, another, well, no, no. Another of your flutter eyebrow. No, no, go Are you, you ever you going should, to understand? You, sh you shouldn't listen to those things. You really want to see. I only listened to it because Elizabeth Day, the interviewee, sent me the clip saying this is hilarious so you so she's say, just trying to wind you up you she, she knows where your buttons are so what Alistair's referring to and he, he I, I've really offended him and I actually I also really blame Elizabeth Day for sharing all these clips because there's obviously no way Alistair's going to slog through listening to me on somebody else's podcast I won't but even I, get on to shag marry avoid yeah but I've I, I've, I've been publicizing my book uh, Politics on the Edge by doing a lot of podcasts and and in them, basically, all I get asked about is the podcast. But you will be pleased that when I was on with Lorraine Kelly yesterday on ITV. I love Lorraine. We did an enormous amount about the podcast. She's a huge fan. And that's probably much bigger listeners than any of these things you're mocking me about. Mm. Now, here we are. <laughs> Richard Dean. Alistair, I'm yes. not going to answer this. Yes. to you. Yes. Have you a go-to song that re-energizes you if you're feeling low in energy or uncertain? Any quite pacey Motown. Okay. Go on, give us an example. Anything from the Four Tops. Uh, oh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough always does it for me. Okay. Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Is that something you do in the gym? Any of the Vast Abba stuff, a lot of Elvis. Is this stuff you run to, box to, or just cheers you that. up in the morning? All of the above. All of the above. All of the above. And do you play do you the know? music very loud? Your neighbours hate being next to you. No, my neighbours love being next to me because I play the bagpipes very loudly. <laughs> uh, I also, I'll tell you the best running music of all time is the Bee Gees live at Massachusetts. Go on, give us a line of that. No, okay. No, I'm not. No, oh, Alistair, I'm disappointed. No, but it's very hard to do the Bee Gees. Um, what about you? 
Go to music. Go to music. I, 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 You're just not into music, are no, you? No, no, I'm not properly it's into music. It's ridiculous. How I'm not, not be into and music? It's very, it's, I think it's probably because I'm tone deaf. It doesn't help much. Right. Okay. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I can't hold a tune. Yeah. Well, I'm not a great singer. No, no, no. I, I, and I, it's the same with the pipes. I can play from music, but I can't play from ear. Oh, right. Okay. Which That's is a big problem with bagpipes. It's a major, major problem. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I literally, I run to a recording of Handel's Messiah. That's a lie. No, it's true. Recorded by do the, you? Yep, I do. Recorded by the 16 in Dublin, and I can show you the recording on my phone. I don't phone. mind that. I think that's, I think that's okay. I think, no, I think that's great. I don't mind that at all. Um, I wouldn't do that, but. <laughs> <laughs> then again, I wasn't educated in the porter cabin. Very good. Well, thank best. you very much. Thank you. See you Bye. soon. Bye-bye. you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.